you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today we are so excited because we're joined by Maricela Trevino Orta. She's an accidental playwright. She got her MFA in poetry from the University of San Francisco. And then she got an MFA in playwriting from the Iowa Playwrights Workshop, um, which is where I met her. She's also a core writer at the Playwright Center, and she's working on a commission right now for Audible. And her play Somewhere, which was commissioned by Temple University, will open February 1st. Welcome to Beckett's Babies. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So we're really excited to talk to you about um, your playwriting and your life in the theater. But first, we want to know, what was your earliest memory? Oh, I I definitely know this. (laughs) I actually think about my earliest memory every so often, interestingly. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a time when my mother wanted to renovate the the, the, the house that I live in or mm-hmm. that I grew up in. And I said, don't, like, if you're going to put in hardwood floors, I want one of these red tiles. We have these unusual, it was built in the 70s, deep kind of red tiles on the floor that are in the living room, kitchen, and dining room. And my first memory is um, light coming in from what was my bedroom, uh, coming in and, and shining on the red tiles of the floor. Ooh. Uh, and just, just it was early morning, and it was just the morning light coming in and hitting the tiles. And I was kind of like, you know, a toddler kind of walking around. And that's the first memory I have. Um, so, yeah. Cool. An image. Yeah. So how did you first discover theater and what were your first impressions? I think my first impressions of theater and I encountered them, I feel like I encountered them when, probably earlier than this, but this is when I feel like they made an impression was high school, uh, English class, you know, we're reading the night thorough spent in jail or we're reading Shakespeare or my friends were auditioning for arsenic and old lace. And my impression of theater, because I had, already thought of myself as a writer was that this is there weren't any living playwrights it was my first uh-huh. impression <laughs> I didn't think theater was I didn't clock it mm. as an option yeah a genre that I could explore um or go into so I was just like oh it's just something you study and it's old and dusty right oh. and so it wasn't it wasn't until my late 20s when I had moved to San Francisco from Texas and I was working on my MFA that I accidentally found my way to theater and realized it was the genre that I had been looking for. Wow. Like, yeah. Yeah. So what was it that you found exciting at that time? How did you get into writing your first play? Let's see. As a poet, uh, I'm, I consider myself an imagist. You know, I'm very interested in writing mm-hmm. about images and, um, one subject matter that I never really broached in poetry was kind of political themes and political ideas because I felt like when I tried to write about them, it felt very clunky. Like I was hitting my reader over the head. (laughs) Uh It it didn't feel like it was, uh, and maybe if I kept working at it, it would have gotten better, but I just, I couldn't do it. Um, while I, USF, you need to know the university of San Francisco is a Jesuit institution. The Jesuits are really big on 
social justice, and I had a part-time job on campus in the Office of Service Learning. And I spent an entire year, they had this one big project where we were interviewing professors who were doing service learning, which means that they were incorporating work in the community into their classrooms. So for example, uh, the business students had developed a database to help hotels that were getting rid of their old furniture, find a nonprofit that needed it, you know, trying to help make those use their skills in the real world to help affect real change and make a difference for people. That's so cool. Mm. Yeah, that's, I, that's a great thing. I loved it. And we were interviewing a theater professor who had started up a theater company in the Mission District in San Francisco that was made up of immigrants from Latin America. And they were developing and devising, before I knew what that term meant, (laughs) a theater piece, (laughs) a political theater. And we interviewed him. And then we had to go get B-roll, you know, which is like the, you know, go into the rehearsal and take video of them in rehearsal. At this time, I was, you know, I I was in my first semester uh, of poetry workshop. And we were required to bring in one poem every week. And so that was like, okay, I got to find inspiration. I need things to inspire me. And when we walked into that rehearsal, I'd never seen anything like that before. They were doing this movement exercise and it was very visual. And so I was very drawn to just watching them rehearse and taking Mm -hmm. photos of them. And I kind of just joined, you know, I just joined (laughs) the company as their, and just dubbed myself their resident poet. And I kind of became their girl Friday for a whole year where I was taking (laughs) pictures. I was putting together their programs. I even translated some of the work. I was running the slides because they would perform in Spanish and there would be super titles. So I, and I would buy props. Like I even ran rehearsal once after um, a year of working with them. What I had taken away was that this is how I could engage with political subjects um, was through theater that with theater, you are able to really, the empathy was like the, the big thing for me. It still is, mm. that, it's, that there, it's so much about empathy. And if you can get your audience to care about your characters, they'll begin to question, why is the world treating these characters this way? Mm-hmm. Why are the systems that this character lives in set up this way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I found that really just um, exciting. And after a year of hanging out with them, I finally asked the question to myself, how exactly do you write a play? <laughs> and my last semester at USF, I audited a you know introduction to playwriting course. Um, the playwright, Christine Evans, had come to campus to be in residency there. And I took her course with the specific goal of writing a, like my first play. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was, that's when I, theater made its second impression on me and it was a much better one <laughs> or maybe it's third. Maybe this is the third impression because the second one was with this theater company. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were reading Sarah Kane oh, and yeah. Hilo mm-hmm. Cruz. And, and, you know, it was just, that sort of stuff was just blowing my mind. Like yeah. I love Sarah Kane and how her imagination is just, is just unrestrained. Um, and that's, that class, I accomplished my goal of writing that first play. And Christine was an amazing mentor. I showed her, I was like, well, I have a bunch of scenes, but I wasn't right. I didn't, I don't write with outlines usually. Mm-hmm. So I was like, here's a scene. I think it happens here. And then this one happens here. And, you know, most of them were monologues because that's what I knew I could do. Because, mm. <laughs> um, And Christine was the one that, you know, sat with me kind of, 
you know, gave me some really great suggestions on, on how to move forward and recommended that I submit the play to the Bay Area Playwrights Festival. Oh. And I used that as a, you know, deadlines are fantastic for writers because it sort of motivates you to do accomplish a goal. Mm-hmm. So I used that as a, okay, I'll take another pass at the play and get the script in shape and submit it. And then it got in. Wow. <laughs> Your first yeah. play. That is so yeah, cool. God. That's very cool. It was, it was cool, but it was also, I didn't quite know what I was doing. <laughs> how, to, how to workshop a play, how to use an experience like that. So it was a little bit of a mm. baptism by fire. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, in a way, that's like the, the, the best way to do it, I think. Yeah. Mm. You know. So I have a question. So when you do, you, as a poet, do you, did you know who you were as a poet? And getting into playwriting would make that easier? Or, or like um, knowing who yourself as a poet to get into playwriting? That identity, did you kind of, was it an easy transition or did you have to mm. like create a whole new voice for yourself? This feel like a little bit like almost two questions, I think. Mm. One is that when I started, when I had, um, when I participated at the festival, I would kept telling everyone, um, I thought of myself as a poet that wrote a play. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it took a couple, it took like a, and then another, like a year passed and I think I got in the commission to write something mm-hmm. and it was like, okay, I'm a poet and a playwright. Mm-hmm. I thought of myself that way. Well, finally, I put the playwright in front of the poet and be like, I'm a playwright and a poet. And now I, it's like, I'm a playwright that came from poetry. Yeah. Wow. Do you remember the moment? Well, I was just wondering about the moment that um, you went from being a primarily a poet who also wrote plays to the moment you became a playwright who wrote poetry. I feel like uh, it happened really quickly. That first play kept opening doors for me. Uh-huh. You know, it won an award. Um, it, ju- it, you know, it just, it kept, op- I kept getting readings of it. It got, it was my first that got produced as well um it just felt like theater was embracing me in a way that you know poetry is a very solitary experience as a writer you write alone mm-hmm. and sometimes you'll go and read your poems uh to an like you know at a bookstore or something with other poets you'll come together and, and read maybe you'll participate in the salon but it was but the minute i walked into the first event that the playwrights foundation had they're the institution that runs the Bay Area Playwrights Festival, they had a little meet and greet for their festival playwrights and some other people, actors, directors. The minute I walked in the door and someone greeted me when they realized who I was and what my play was, it just, it was just like this kind of embracing. And also theater people are so gregarious, maybe not the playwrights, but everyone else is, you know, and so it just, it just was a a community uh, welcoming me in a way that poetry you work really hard by yourself. The good thing about po- coming from poetry was I was very used to rejection. Mm-hmm. I, I saw it as a numbers game. It's like, yeah, I get it. You just have to send your work out. Sometimes, you know, they'll pick it, but it has to work within their journal. Like there's a theme the journal is, has. It has to sort of make sense. The way you put together your own poetry chapbook is, is sort of the same way. And that's very similar to season selection or festival selection. Mm-hmm. So learning not to take it personally and just realizing you just have to keep working at it and eventually start to mm. start to see traction, you know? Yeah. So how do you begin to write a new play? 
Um, like, you know, what do you usually start with? Do you turn a new idea into, like, how do you turn a new idea into a first draft? Usually, you know, the ideas come to me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an image or a, a thought, but, um, I have to, I have to see it. I have to see like some of the central images and I have to kind of get to know my characters before the, the writing starts to get easy. Mm-hmm. Um, what was interesting about the commission with Temple University and being asked to write a play and I was like, great, yes, please commission me. I have no idea what I'm going to write about. <laughs> um, I went to go visit uh, because I was writing specifically for their graduate actors. So I wanted to, they wanted me to meet them and I wanted to meet them as well to get to know them. So meeting them actually influenced some of the the character dynamics in the play, which was so interesting. Um, and while I was there, I just happened across an article and about like what would happen if all the insects in the world disappeared and how would that affect yeah. uh, the world? And so that was in my head. And I had also been since, so this visit was in February in January, I was rewatching some movies that I love that are very visual. Um, uh, Delicatessen, The City of Lost Children, and Amelie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Delicatessen, I think, is the one that has the biggest influence on somewhere in a lot of ways, um, just like visual aesthetic wise. Um, so I need to, I need to see an opening image, and I need to see an end. I have to. I know my endings. I always know where I'm going. I just don't know how I get there. So writing is a process of discovery. Uh, and the characters are kind of driving the bus, but I always know the ending moment of a play. Does the ending ever change as you're writing? Like, do you ever kind of adjust details about it or is it pretty much fixed? It usually, I mean, it's a very, a general idea. Uh, I see. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't have like everything spelled out. I just know that I have to get to this point this specific with somewhere I was like, I know I have to get them to this location Mm -hmm. and that I know this is going to happen to this one person, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that was kind of the extent of the ending that I was going for. And then Um, it kind of comes into focus maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once I start writing that ending and I'm getting to know the characters even better and as I go through rewrites, of course, I'm like, okay. And then I need to make sure I close the loop on whatever, you know, system or, um, uh, repetition that I'm, that's coming in. Like sometimes there's like, uh, that's the, the other thing is that I find my poetry, my poetics come into the playwriting is not just with images. It's with, uh, rhythm and repetition and metaphor. Yeah. You know, all those things are getting used. And that's also how I think about the play. Um, I think about like, especially what, what are the central metaphors and themes and what certain images or phrases are being repeated. Did you do, uh, it seems like somewhere has a lot of, well, I mean, it does have a lot of scientific information in it. And so I'm wondering um, what your research process was like. Did you know most of that information before you started writing or did you kind of find out things as you went? Uh, I always have to have an internet connection so that I can get uh-huh. jump onto Google. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some things I knew, like I know that butterflies, you know, go through this process and I know that the monarchs go to Mexico, but I don't know a lot of the other details. I had to research and I, thank goodness it actually, somebody has already done it. Like I found a video on National Geographic of people who had developed um, 
transmitters that were light enough to tag butterflies with, specifically monarchs. Wow. And they were using directional antennas, you know, and so I was like, oh, that's perfect. I need that. Or learning about, I mean, I'd heard of the humongous fungus um, before, but learning about exactly um, more about about it, you know, how it is ex- parasite um and also learning about truffles <laughs> and how they're in a symbiotic relationship so there's ton- yeah. this has a lot had a lot of tons tons of research but it's been enjoyable um i've always kind of liked science i grew up with a lot of science my dad taught earth science in junior high so it's always kind of fun to return to mm. to sciencey stuff mm-hmm. for me That's cool cool yeah i noticed in the play um the tone of it it was this i I was saying Sam just was a very creepy play for me because it we're like in this like because <laughs> what's happening in the world right now and the way the play was sort of projecting this not so far distant future that I'm like I could actually see yeah. this kind of happening next week <laughs> which kind of gave me this like creepy vibe <laughs> to it um is are you um do you like to write plays that are kind of scary <laughs> that was the best way to explain it. Uh, yeah I don't know that I set out to do it um yeah you know unless, well that's not true the, the play I'm working on for audible is intentionally mm-hmm. like a horror slash thriller <laughs> but you but cool. but um but I I lean I like tragedy and maybe mm. there's some blur like there's some kind of like Venn diagram where tragedy can go into things that are very scary or things that are just depressing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. then can feel very scary. Um, so yeah, maybe it's connected to the tragedy. Like what do you think is, is about tragedy that has a role in, what, in like how we can share these stories or like what's the impact there? I've always been whenever, I, when I started this, this journey in theater, found tragedy to be the more like I'm more find it more compelling I'm always I want to watch it's funny I was telling one of my best friends last night I was like I love going to the theater and watching drama and tragedy but when I watch movies I want junk food and I'm watching like action and (laughs) sci-fi so Mm -hmm. theaters uh I think I I I really want Mm -hmm. theater to reach in and grab my heart and squeeze uh I want to feel something when I'm sitting Mm -hmm. there maybe it's because I'm sitting there with a group of people watching the same thing and we're having a communal experience. Maybe it has to do with the fact that the actors are feet away from us and I feel like they can have a huge impact watching them go through their emotional crisis. Um, And I do feel like there's a little bit of catharsis. Um, It's sort of like, why do we enjoy riding roller coasters? You know, because we like the thrill of it. And I think going to see something tragic feels a bit like an emotional roller coaster. Is there a play you've seen either recently or a long time ago that did that where, you know, you think about it as a kind of um, guide for what's possible in a play, something you saw that did grab Mm -hmm. your heart and squeeze it? Yeah, there's a play that happened here in the Bay Area, um, The Care of Trees um, by East Mm -hmm. Brainer. It was at Shotgun Players and... It just, I, I, I just sat in the, I was just sat afterwards and I was, cause I was crying at the ending, you know, I just, mm. it was, I, I was very moved, you know, and I, I really loved that, that, that a piece of theater could shake me like that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I had an experience like that seeing dry land um, when I was living in Chicago. And I, I went to see it by myself. And I remember thinking about how if I see a play with another person or with a couple of people, I think sometimes I'm not as totally open to the experience. Mm. There, I don't know. There was something about seeing that play about going by myself and watching it and then leaving by myself and like being alone with my mm-hmm. thoughts that allowed it to reach inside me more powerfully. Um, I don't know. Do you ever think about it that way? Like, like seeing something with someone, you know, versus seeing it with only strangers. Yeah. I, and I used to watch a lot of theater by myself, you know, sometimes occasionally it would take a friend, mm-hmm. but uh, I wanted to see theater once a week when I was living here in the Bay Area, and so I was just like, "This is mm-hmm. this is part of what I do, you know. As a playwright, I need to go out and see some shows because it's a way of learning." Um, and uh, yeah, no, I was just like, "I'm going to go by myself," and so I was always. I think there might have been something to the fact that I wasn't immediately talking with somebody right after the show about the show, or um, yeah. having someone nudge me in a show when something was either ridiculous or, you know, or just kind of moving or something, but, but experiencing it with strangers, um, there, there's probably something to it. So our next question I want to ask is inspired by a recent interview with Gwydion Sullivan, uh, where he kind of talked about what it means to be an artist in the 21st century. Um, and I love to ask that question to you, you know, how would you define what it means to be an artist in the 21st century? I'm, I'm sure Gwydion had an amazing response to that. <laughs> Don't compare and contrast. Oh, we won't. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, so eloquent. Um, in the 21st century, what does it mean to be an artist? I think, I mean, there's lots of ways, of course, to answer this question. But the first thought that comes to my head is how... Um, is how different it must be for us to not, when I talked earlier about poetry being very solitary and I wonder how solitary theater was, um, you know, a hundred years ago in the sense mm-hmm. that maybe you would be working locally, you know, within a community versus yeah. how easy we, we have more tools now to help us access uh, our colleagues around the country and around the world. Uh, there's a decentralization um, that hopefully will benefit you know <laughs> everyone. Um, I feel like it's definitely benefited me um, taking advantage of, of meeting people online and developing relationships that then turned into, hey, I want to read your play. Hey, we want to do a reading. We want to produce it. Mm-hmm. A way mm-hmm. of offering different avenues and get, and so that the, the, the long-held traditional gatekeepers are no longer... Um, the tastemasters for the entire society, but that there's other ways for artists to, to, to have their careers, but to also break into um, opportunities that we haven't seen in the past. So that's exciting. Yeah. Um, I'll just talk about that, that, that thing. Cause there's so many topics of that, you know, that affect us as artists. There's so many things that our present moment um, can ask of us mm-hmm. or that, you know, 
offers us opportunities to engage in. Yeah. I really like that a lot. And that's why for me, I feel kind of puzzled when I meet other artists who were very like resisting, resisting these ways of new ways of connecting or like new ways of finding, creating those opportunities. And so I'm like, it, like, how can you not like fully engage with all this? Cause there's just so much there. So we both really liked in your artist statement, you have a Lorca mm. quote, um, a play is a poem standing yeah. up. And uh, we were wondering if you would share what that means to you and how you see the connection between your poetry and playwriting um, and, and the different things that each is able to do. You know, when I, when I started this journey as a playwright and I realized that Lorca wrote plays, I knew him as a poet first. And then okay. I was like, what? He mm-hmm. wrote plays? Most amazing plays, too. <laughs> and that quote, when I read that quote, I was like, yes, that's it. A play is a poem standing up. It, it, you know, a po- it's, it's, I think of the actors as the embodiment of the, it's like they're the poem that's coming to life. Mm. You know, we, yeah, rhythm and, and again, all those things, those pr- prosodic elements, rhythm, repetition, lyricism, imagery, metaphor theater lets you see it in a way that you, I mean, so you, you get to use your imagination, but theater with its, a lot, sometimes with its resources or sometimes when the way it asks you to imagine something, it's just, it's so powerful as, as an, as a medium, as an art form. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, I've, when I first found that quote, I was like, that's, 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 that's the quote for me. That's how I think about (laughs) theater. And I'm, I try to hope I, you know, try to write with that quote in mind. I don't just imagine the plot and the mm. dialogue. I'm uh-huh. thinking about the visuals of the world. I'm thinking sometimes about the sounds. Like my first play, there was a yeah. lot of dripping water because La Llorona was a character and she's associated with bodies of water. And so like that became like a, a motif in the play. And so I think about all those things. I think all the senses and how they can be engaged and how we can think about them when we're crafting our story so that it's, you know, this kind of very rounded experience for our audience and whoever, or whoever's reading it or whoever's watching it. But yeah, no, that's, that, that quote is sort of like a guiding, what is it? Guiding post for me. That's awesome. It's very, very cool. important. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we move on to our glistens, I have a final question to ask is, um, what advice would you give to our listeners who are interested in playwriting? People who never thought about writing a play, but now they're like really engaged or they're really inspired to. And do you have any advice for listeners? I have two things that I think um, might be helpful. Uh, The first is to trust your instincts, your gut you do not have to write in any specific way. Like if everyone says, Oh, you have to do an outline. No, you don't figure out, figure (laughs) out how you are going to write. Everyone has their own process. So you have to figure out if you need a quiet place or if you want it to be in a cafe where there's lots of people to give you inspiration, you have to figure out if you want to start with, sometimes I do this, an image board and every play will be different. Mm -hmm. So what works with one process, you know, for one play might not work with the next one. But just 
to trust your instincts and try it and just, just do it because there's learning in the doing. And each time you're, you're writing a play or you're doing a new draft or you're starting a new play, you're, you're, lear- you're taking what you've learned and you're making, you're just refining your abilities and the craft will come, but it takes time. Some people will get the hang of it faster than others. But I do also feel like, and this is connected to the second piece of advice, it takes time. Uh, this is coming from Adam Sinkowitz. I read something on his blog once and I was like, early on when I, when I was thinking of myself, I am now a playwright. Uh, and his advice was, it takes 10 years before you really see your career yeah. movement, you know, any movement. I remember reading that. <laughs> and that was a relief for me, actually. Because, yeah. And I've, I've told this to other playwrights when they're like, oh, but I've only been doing this for like five years and I haven't. And I was like, it takes 10 before you start to see mm-hmm. movement. It, 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 it really held true for me too. Suddenly things started happening, productions, commi- like commissions and momentum. But if you give up just because you're not an overnight success, first of all, there's no such thing. Overnight, we only see the success, but that overnight success took 10 years, 15 years for it to suddenly become like the thing that it is. So don't, don't, you know, put that pressure on yourself to become an overnight success. um, And don't feel like a failure just because it's not happening. It can take time and use that time to, you know, to get better at your craft, to read, to watch, um, one thing that I really think helped my career, it wasn't an intentional thing, but I got really involved in my local theater community. Um, there was mm-hmm. a feminist theater salon that I started attending. I got to meet all these actors that, you know, if I, if I don't have somebody in a reading, how am I going to meet, meet an actor or in a production? So this, it was a way to suddenly meet my theater community. I, you know, then I got really involved with like online, like with Twitter, when theater people were really on Twitter talking about theater. And that opened up like my, my network and community of people. I, I, I volunteer nationally right now with the Latinx Theater Commons. And volunteering with them in three years, I had met people that it would have taken to get that roster of connections, not connections, but like colleagues would have taken 30 mm-hmm. years. And I did it in three. Right. <laughs> so just the fact that I yeah. was volunteering and being active as a member of my theater community people get to know you because it's true. This, this profession is also about relationships. It's not just our work and how good it is, but if people get to know you, then they want to read your work. And if they read your work then and they like you, then it's like, well, then let's continue talking. And then it becomes something. They think of you when there's an opportunity or they think of you when they're season doing their season planning. So uh, just being an active member of my community has suddenly led to lots of really great things. And so it's, that's, and I think that's what drew me to theater. Like I said, at the beginning was how, how the community had really embraced me and how I just felt it wasn't a solitary experience and leaning into that kind of embracement has led to really good things. So I would say, yes, it's about your work. Yes. It's about the craft and about the stories that you're telling. Of course it is. But if, you know, and also be a nice person because if if people are jerks, you know, you only work someplace once. Mm. (laughs) Lots of brilliant playwrights, you know, (laughs) out there. Uh, So if if you're you're terrible to people, 
they'll find another brilliant one. So, right. (laughs) So that was more like three pieces of advice, but. (laughs) No, that's great. That's, I think that's really good advice. All of it. So where can our listeners find you? Um, They can find me on Twitter. (laughs) That's probably the best place to find me. Uh, My handle, it's my first name, my middle initial, my last name. So that's M-A-R-I-S-E-L-A-T-O-R-T-A. So it looks like Maricela Torta. And if you know Spanish, a torta is a sandwich, which was kind of funny, but I was like, it's, I had to put the initial in. So, uh, Cool. So this is um, the section of our show. We do glistens. Uh, when you were in the workshop, do you remember Dare Club? Wanting to do glistens. Like, yeah. What are the glistens of the <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Yeah. So this is that <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, inspiration. Yeah. At the end of this show, we like to share favorite glistens of the week. This can be new music you learned or a new app you learned or something, just something that kind of popped out at you during the week. We literally talk about anything. Like I've talked about artichokes on the show. Um, so it's anything. Um, yeah. Okay. So, Mm-hmm. I would say two things for this past week. Um, I was um, in contact with some of our co- our friends and, and fellow alums from the workshop this week, uh, texting and on the phone and even in person uh, because mm-hmm. I needed like support. I needed to be talking to like processing stuff. And, uh, and mm-hmm. it was really lovely to feel like I had people that had my back. Mm-hmm. It was, I so appreciated mm-hmm. it. You know, um, I was like, Nina called me, Nina Morrison called me uh, in the middle of like her like, rehearsal. She had taken a break and she called me to check in with me. Um, mm-hmm. Eric Holmes was texting with me and offering me advice. And, and then Nina was like, Lupe is in LA. You should go have dinner with Lupe. And so then I met up with Lupe <laughs> Flores and we went and had, this is the second glisten, the most amazing sushi I have ever Ooh. had. And I've lived, <laughs> oh my and I've lived on the West coast and I know what good sushi is. And he was like, let's do this. It's like a flight, like, you know, like a flight. Of, I've never had a flight of sushi, <laughs> it was like 14 different little servings. Oh my gosh. And it was phenomenal. Like, I mean, because I live in the I live in the Midwest now, and I'm always like, "Where am I going to get sushi?" Yeah, a lot of the sushi. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Midwest. I'm sorry, but filled no, like cream true. cheese does not belong in every single <laughs> roll. It only belongs in the Philadelphia roll for the people who are just beginning to try sushi. <laughs> you know, it's to help bridge you over until you're brave enough to try the raw stuff, and and of course, you know, you want really fresh, fresh. Fish and, and it's just the quality, you know, on the coast is always going to be a little bit, you know, better, yeah. I think. But West Coast Sushi and, and this place, it was so good. And even the dessert, which was this little like, like this little bitty like chocolatey thing, but it had this kind of matcha like, taste as well. And because it was even Lupe, who doesn't do desserts, he tasted it and he was like, whoa, that's good. So it was just so nice to be with people, um, uh, to get support from friends like that. And I, even one of my, my favorite collaborators, Lori Woolery, we were on the phone talking and just sort of just talking to her really centered me and kind of helped me, um, understand some things. And it was just, it was, it was exactly what I needed. And, um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in, well, I mean, I'm not always that great 
at doing this, but I love, you know, maintaining friendships. It's a lot of work. Yeah. I'm so much better at it with my friends that are also theater mm. people. Well, and I think that's one of talk the, about it. I mean, whether you have an MFA or not, I think that's mm-hmm. one of the most gratifying parts of a life in the theater is these kind of long-term theater friendships mm-hmm. that you build with people. And mm-hmm. I think it is a really good reason to get an MFA because you build those connections and you get to know each other's work mm-hmm. over three very intense <laughs> years, you know, and yeah. then you're going to have yeah. that forever. But I think even if you don't have an MFA, you know, you still can find those people. And yeah. If we could go back to advice after we, after you said that, it made me think mm-hmm. about something yeah. that mm-hmm. I would offer. Absolutely. So I, when I found my way to theater, I was in the middle of my first master's and that master's was not free. Mm-hmm. I'm still paying off the debt of that. Okay. Um, wow. That experience. Mm-hmm. And so when I came, got out of school and suddenly it was like theater was becoming a thing, I was adamant, I'm not going back to school. I'm yeah. still paying off that first MFA. Um, it wasn't until I got to a point that I was just like, no, I, I want to do it, but I'm only going to apply yes. to schools that are free. Mm-hmm. And that is the thing I tell everyone. Yes, get an MFA, but do not pay for it. Do yeah. not pay for it because this, our profession doesn't pay us enough as it is. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's, I mean, po- and I thought poets had it bad. I mean, they're, they're like a rung beneath us when it comes to like income. It's really hard um, to make money as a poet. It's a little bit better as, at playwriting, but it's still, it's still like, you know, you just never know if you're going to have a production or if it'll be years between productions. Um, and, and having that debt right. over, hanging over you, that's the other thing. As I, Right now, I'm, I'm only doing playwriting. And mm-hmm. I've got some income coming in from productions. I'm also living off of savings. But debt, like that debt and you know other debt, it's, this is why it's so, such an untenable thing for a playwright to just be a playwright. Yeah. That's why we always want a day job. No one talks about how stressful that the finances are. I'm re- I don't have any dependents and that also makes it possible, but it's just sort of like, do yourself a favor. Don't go to a program that's asking you to, to like pay them a bunch of money. Right. Because you can be an autodidact and read a bunch of plays and go to plays and, and meet people in the theater and you don't have to go the MFA route necessarily. But if you want to, I would only apply to the programs that are totally. free. Yeah. And there are different models. I mean, there are some models where, you know, it's like it's funded by a big grant or a big endowment or, um, you know, I think the cool thing about Iowa is it's the really the graduate student union that won this, Mm. um, you know, total coverage of tuition. Um, And I didn't go to school, you know, between like when I started life as a playwright and then I went to Iowa. It was 10 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right. you can take time. You can take your time. Right. You don't yeah. have to do it right away. And also the thing about that is like you're looking at only the free programs. They're all very different. Mm-hmm. You know, Iowa is very hands-off, which is exactly what I needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and it kind of expects you to already come into the program knowing how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. You're just going to get the chance to get better at it and to teach and to take classes, you know, but you have, it's, it's like, it's okay to take your time so that you can one, find the right program for you. Mm-hmm. 
and be ready for it when you finally apply and make the most of it. So you don't have to do it right away. You know, some people feel like I have to finish my undergrad and jump into a program. It's like, no, you can spend some time living your life and gathering that, you know, fodder for your imagination. Um, but then get into the program that you really want, you know, don't settle. Yeah, Absolutely. I feel like everything you just said right now has just been my mantra. Every time someone asks me about grad school, I'm like, do not pay for it. Do not mm-hmm. pay for it. Like, just like find Absolutely. that's exactly my mentality when I was looking to grad school. I only applied to schools that I knew uh, would offer uh, grants or some kind of fellowship that just because, yeah, I'm still yeah. I'm still paying some debt off for my undergrad. Like, it's insane. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. totally. 110%. I'm doing, I'm thinking all those like gifs that are like applauding you right now. <laughs> just want to throw that all at you. <laughs> <But> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Real quickly back to Glistens. What was the name of that sushi place? <laughs> oh, I was going to look it I was up. Like, oh man. Like, hold on. Give me, let me look. I was Yelp. Where was I? I was staying in Westwood. <gasps> oh, sushi. in LA. You were, this was in LA. Mm-hmm. I was in LA last Oh, Kazanori? Um, oh, no. And, no, it started with an H. H, H, H. Where are you? Listen up, West Coast listeners. Ah. Hamasaku. Ooh, okay. Hamasaku. And, I mean, it was amazing. It was an amazing eating experience. <laughs> uh, it was so generous. He, he's like, he took me out. And I was like, this is fantastic. Sarah, you have to go there and get the flight. And then tell Beckett's babies all about it. I literally live like four blocks away from this place. Oh my gosh. (laughs) An experience, let me tell you. Um, Do you have any recommendations of a good sushi place in Maine? (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, no. My other recommendation is here in San Francisco. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Sam. Leave Maine. That's my right. No, I won't. Um, Sarah, what's your glisten? Okay. My glisten, it's kind of lame. It's going to sound lame, but then it's kind of meaningful for me. Um, So as some of my listeners know, I started this new job um, working for Inside Out Writers, which is bringing in creative writing classes to the juvenile halls in LA. And um, the I had to get the permission to step into those halls. I have to get through this fingerprinting approval process. They do a background check. And it took me, mm-hmm. it was, I got it back in like early October. And just this week, I got the email saying, you're approved. You can go in now. So wow. it's just been this like long, just waiting every day, just like anticipating when can I go inside to to actually start my work. I'm working mm-hmm. with all these teachers and actually like meet them now in person instead of just through emails. And like, I just, so it was just been like waiting <laughs> now that I know that I'm, I'm able to go in and it's like, I, I actually could start, but yeah, I got that email. I printed it out. I taped it on right on next to my desk <laughs> at work. And I'm like, cool. Like this is another step uh, into this work. That's it. You're approved. I'm approved. By LA County. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what's your glisten, Sam? Um, so right now in one of my classes, I'm reading um, 
the book, uh, the collected poems of Joy Harjo called How We Became Human. And um, so I'm reading that with my students. And I just cannot recommend it highly enough. She's the new poet laureate. And this book is a collection of her work over many different, um, from many different books that she's published. And it's really good. And that's my dog barking in the background. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Well, that was our glistens. Marcella, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, you heard it here, folks. She was she's happy that we had her here. <laughs> okay. Awesome.